Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. Football season is already halfway through, and basketball season is now in full swing, and BetOnline remains your number one spot for all the action this season. Head to the new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Use the promo code Believe 50, B L E A V 50, to receive your bonus. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite sports. Bet online, where the game starts. afternoon or good night however and whenever it is you may be listening thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the take it easy podcast live as always on the believe podcast network except not always because it's been that way for three months and it's not live because it's a podcast welcome everybody it is november 17th according to my count it may not be that according to your count but we appreciate you stopping in anyways make sure to download leave a five-star review doesn't have to be a nice review just has to be a five-star review if you're listening on apple if you're listening on spotify download 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 because we had another huge day yesterday y'all came through big and uh, we much appreciate all of the support here we are marching towards what could still be a record-setting month. We still have a chance to break some records here halfway through the month, and it's thanks to all the support from you. So on today's show, we're going to talk about an interesting development in college football. We talked about this a little bit last week, but it's now, or sorry, yesterday with the uh, with Razor Rosenthal, and uh, we had a new development that added some more intrigue to this story. So we'll talk about it a little bit coming up later, and little quick hitter on Major League Baseball, because a couple interesting things happen in baseball outside of the labor negotiation that's about to come up. That's a bigger story, but sometimes I just want to mess around and talk about Noah Syndergaard and Jose Berrios on a podcast, because sometimes that's just fun to waste time talking about trivial things of those sorts. So we'll do that in a little bit, but first and foremost, I would like to talk about Yanis Antetokounmpo, the Greek freak, one of the two players that we have in the profile photo, I'm sorry, not profile photo, the cover art for this here podcast. Um, Giannis is our generation's superstar, and by our, I mean the people of my early Gen Z, I suppose. I was born in 2001, so I take generations and kind of split them into three it's like a general rule that I have because I think generations which usually span like 15 years really should be split into like five years because that's kind of where the cultural generations split off a bit in terms of the technological developments and what you're going through in school and what the trendy cool things are it's hard for me to relate to 15 year olds today but it's easier for me to relate to 23 year olds so I think that it's a little bit of a split there. There's some similarities that cross over, but overwhelmingly, 
you'll find niche differences every about five years. And so we talk a lot in the NBA about the generations and how about 2003 to 2007 is the LeBron generation. From 2007 until about 2013 is the uh, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry generation. From 2013 to 2018 is the Giannis generation. And then right about now we have the I guess more 2012 to 2017 is Giannis, and then uh, 2017 until the present is the uh, Luka Zion generation, although Zion's a weird case because we haven't seen him at all this year and the Pelicans are totally falling apart. But at the very least, you can throw Luka in the mix there. And by the years, of course, I'm talking about the years that they were drafted. So like at the time, those players will enter their prime. They're all relatively around the same age. If you want to know the full details, we did a podcast on this back in the summer. Anyways, so I wanted to talk about Giannis because there was an interesting GQ article that dropped on him. And every now and then there's interesting profiles of people. We did a whole podcast back in August about Giannis's story um, from the book by Mirren Fader, Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP. And it was a really, really good book. And we, we dissected that a bit. But this is one specific thing I want to tackle from the GQ article. One is just addressing something that I found interesting first, but then the story that I think connects to a bigger picture conversation around Giannis. The first is he was talking about the birth of his second son and uh, the birth of his first son where he cries in the delivery room when he sees his kids and then instinctively replaces the joy in his life that he lost when his father died in 2017 with Liam and now Maverick, his second son, and that's the kind of joy and love that he had lost in his life by his father disappearing. And he talked about how he doesn't cry at just anything because he went through a lot as a kid. And in Greece, it's more common culturally to cry through hardship. Like he, there's a story from the book where he gets to the NBA and he is um, in one of his earlier practices with the Bucks. He's like getting close to crying, and the coaches are kind of instilling in him, "Do not cry, do not cry. You cannot cry right now." And that was kind of like a cultural shift there, a little bit. I think there's obviously the toughness involved around it. I think it was just more commonly accepted in Greece. And so he talks about having uncontrollable emotion in that moment. And having that replace the love that he lost for his father. And all of that coming full circle with his child, but also having the recognition that his child is going to be his own person. It's not going to be filling the void that his father lost. That memory of his father is in the past, and now he creates new memories with the new stage of his life. And that kind of perspective of accepting the past being the past and doing what you can to move into the future and set up a new stage of your life after that period. Which brings me to the conversation that more relates to basketball, which is this quote that is circulating around NBA circles, which is, quote, I just love challenges. What's the next challenge? The next challenge might not be here. Me and my family chose to stay in this city that we all love and has taken care of us for now. In two years, that might change. I'm being totally honest with you. I'm always honest. I love this city. I love this community. I want to help as much as possible. End quote. And here's the follow-up to that afterwards in the article. Did this mean he was thinking about leaving? I asked his agent. Quote, I don't think it's I'm thinking about leaving the Bucks. Sar- Saratsis told me. 
quote, but I think he's genuinely like, okay, I have reached the pinnacle. The next challenge is let's repeat. But what happens if you do repeat? What's the next challenge? What's the next barrier? When do you think about it from a basketball perspective? By the age of 26, this kid has accomplished everything. So sometimes you're going to have to manufacture what those challenges are. And so that's something interesting that Giannis puts forth in this article vulnerably. I don't know if Giannis is always honest because I think that's not true at all. And I'm not even oblivious to the idea that Giannis is totally honest. The conversation I wanted to have around this is this idea of an anti-modern superstar. And people seem to lavish this idea of a superstar who is loyal to their city and a superstar who doesn't do what the entitled modern star does. And I'm doing this all sarcastically because I don't think that wanting to play for a different team makes you entitled. I don't think putting yourself out there as a billion, as not a billion, as a hundred million dollar economy built around a singular entity of you being physically gifted enough to be one of the best in the world at this one craft. With hundreds of million dollars at stake, I don't think there's a level of entitlement to controlling your own destiny. Players should move around. It makes it more fun for us watching. It's more enjoyable when we have dominant super teams because the only thing that draws us in are stakes and storylines. And because the NBA regular season is wholly irrelevant, the stakes don't matter at all. I know Bulls fans are pissed at me for saying the Lakers and Bucks are better than them in power rankings. I'm like, you, you guys have DeMar DeRozan as your best player, who is going to be the third best player on the Los Angeles Lakers. So I think it's sometimes as simple as that in terms of you want to really believe it's going to be the case, but you just know it's not. And so all of that to bring it back, the NBA regular season doesn't really matter until you manufacture stakes and storylines. And Giannis and the Bucks have been kind of bad to start the season so far. And this is an interesting conversation because Milwaukee is a championship contender simply by virtue of having Giannis on the team. And this is the interesting conversation about what you do when you are in that position, because there are only a handful of players that are ever in that position where the team you play for is a championship contender simply by virtue of having you on the team. And we think about the past, let's say, six years two generations or three generations worth of examples. You have LeBron James, of course, and Dwayne Wade. Those are two players that just simply by having you on that team, they are automatically championship good. Kobe Bryant's another case of this kind of at the very end there with the Lakers. And so LeBron and Dwayne Wade joined together. And now you have a post, uh, post-decision world where it's now socially acceptable for stars to change teams. So now we go further down the docket here to, say, Kevin Durant in 2016 is a player that no matter what team he plays for, you are a championship contender just by virtue of having him on your team. He goes to the Golden State Warriors. Steph Curry, same case. Steph Curry, by virtue of simply having him on your team, you are a championship contender as we are seeing this year for the Golden State Warriors. Number one seed in the Western Conference, legitimately good. I think they're like 11-1 and one or 11-2 and two right now. And by the way, Klay Thompson's only played in half the games. Moody hasn't played. Kaminga hasn't really played at all. Like, it's been really, really easy for the Warriors just because you have Steph Curry and not absolute garbage around him. And so Warriors, by virtue of having him going back to 2016, immediately a championship contender. Kawhi Leonard with the Spurs, 2017-2018, 
even some 2016 when they went 40-1 and in the regular season. But really, 17-18 Kawhi Leonard, by having him on your team, you are immediately a championship contender. Goes to Toronto, then goes to the Clippers. Same situation where it feels like these players who change the balances of power in the sport switch teams all the time. And then you go to LeBron James, obviously switching back to the Cavs and switching to the Lakers. All of that makes people a little tired or worn out of that idea, especially when you feel nostalgia for an old type of format. And so Giannis is this person you can hold up as a player who, no matter where they go, they're going to be a championship contender, which by the way, if that's the case, why wouldn't you put yourself in a place that you want to live with players you want to play with and give you the best chance to succeed if your best chance to win is by having you on the team? Because it's more honorable to do it somewhere else? I personally don't believe that at all. I don't think it's more honorable that Giannis won a championship with the Bucks. It's really cool that Giannis won a championship with the Bucks. We also said the whole way through, if Kevin Durant's shoe size is slightly smaller, the Brooklyn Nets win the championship, and if the Lakers stay healthy, the Lakers might beat the Bucks because they've got two of those players that can kind of match up with Giannis Antetokounmpo in terms of matching wits, even if Giannis is a better player the gap is not significant enough once you get to the very end of the playoffs. And so Giannis and Damian Lillard, even though Damian Lillard is one of these like fringe players who under the best of circumstances could be the best player on a championship team, similar to Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic, is this desire for a hero who doesn't switch teams is like an anti James Harden. I forgot to mention him in there too. James Harden was the last guy who's like, just by virtue of having him on your team, he's immediately really good. We don't have to do the conversation about what's happened to James Harden this year. You can go somewhere else for that programming. So we hold up Giannis as this anti modern superstar. And I don't think Giannis is that person. Giannis plays into it because it is good for the Giannis brand. And maybe this is cynical of me from someone who loves Giannis, but I don't love him for the reasons that other people love Giannis. is because Giannis is affable. Giannis is innocent. Giannis is uh, loyal. And these things that people talk about and why they love Giannis. I love Giannis because that dude is unbelievably good at basketball. His craft is unlike anything that has ever existed in my life. It was similar to James Harden and similar to Steph Curry and those players I loved because it's entertainment. It makes me entertained in a way that nobody else can and we can hitch our wagon to that guy and create content around it. That is why I love Giannis Antetokounmpo. It is not for the reasons that other people claim to like Giannis Antetokounmpo because I don't believe any of those things to be true about Giannis Antetokounmpo. We said for eight months on this podcast, there is a 0% chance Giannis Antetokounmpo stays with the Milwaukee Bucks because only if you believe that it is more honorable to win a championship with the Milwaukee Bucks at the expense of potentially legacy and satisfaction and happiness, would you find yourself saying that Giannis Antetokounmpo should stay for any basketball reason with the Milwaukee Bucks. And Giannis Antetokounmpo chose to stay with the Milwaukee Bucks. And he can also leave any time he wants. 
As he alluded to in the GQ article, if Giannis Antetokounmpo is willing to make it ugly, he can leave Milwaukee whenever he wants. And maybe there's like a wink-wink, nod-nod agreement between the Bucks and Giannis that if he ever so wanted to leave, they would honor that request. And maybe they'll batten down the hatches and force Giannis to become the anti-hero to get his way. But at the same time, Giannis Antetokounmpo... And he's bought up a lot of good grace as well. Like when Damian Lillard this offseason talked about wanting to leave teams, everyone was like, yeah, we get it. We don't blame Damian Lillard for that. There's a contingent of people who would um, go after Damian Lillard, but I think those are the people who are too nostalgic for a time when Carl Malone played 19 years with Utah, even though Carl Malone left the Jazz at the very end. Or Michael Jordan sticking it out with the Bulls, even though Michael Jordan went to play for the Wizards at the very end. All of that to say, there's a certain entitlement that is never going to be satisfied but for the majority of people Damian Lillard bought up enough good graces where he was being shopped around this offseason and everyone understood it everyone was like we get it Dame you've done the best you can team's not very good if you're ready to go the franchise is kind of pushing you out the door a little bit if you believe some of the reporting that's come out around it that's wink wink nod nod that Portland like was looking at the idea of just blowing it up and restarting, and now you have a, a investigation into organization toxic workplace, and a team president resigns in the last week, and all of that buys Damian Lillard the good grace to say, we understand if you leave. Now, this is, again, just satisfying a larger public that wants to crush Kevin Durant and crush James Harden and crush LeBron James for being the modern superstar stereotype. I would not do that at all. I think Giannis Antetokounmpo should still leave the Milwaukee Bucks because the Bucks have used all their cap space, used all their draft picks, and every avenue to improve the team other than trading Chris Middleton or Drew Holiday for a player better than Chris Middleton or Drew Holiday, which given their contract situation is not really the greatest right now for either of those players. And so when Giannis talks about this, I think it alludes to something that people don't focus on enough, which is Giannis is probably not the person that you have him as in his head. Giannis Antetokounmpo is making the same cold calculated business decisions for his brand, or at the very least, people are making those decisions based on what is the beneficiary for Giannis Antetokounmpo and what is best for a now $300 million economy where for the next five, six, seven years, Everywhere he goes, his team will be a championship contender. If he wants to stay two, three years in a place like Kevin Durant and Kawhi Leonard did, go do it. Now, Kawhi Leonard's fell apart because of injuries, but if you only want to stay three years in a place, go do it. If you want to stay two years in a place, go do it because every single place you go, you are a championship contender. And if you want to suck up all the resources from an organization and swap to another team, go do it. Because you are a, you should maximize your window to the best possibility you see fit. And staying in Milwaukee, basketball-wise, is not the best fit at all for Giannis Antetokounmpo. I can name you 15 better situations. Nah, not 15. Yeah, let's say, you know, 14 better situations, but then you take out another 7 or 8 because you'd have to trade for Giannis Antetokounmpo. And so what you're giving up makes it not as good of a situation. So there are a few situations that are very much better than Giannis Antetokounmpo staying 
with the Milwaukee Bucks basketball-wise. Giannis Antetokounmpo maybe prioritizes other things outside of the basketball sense, and you know maybe that doesn't matter to him as much. That's more an individual case. If you're looking at it from a cold, calculated move of this is what is best for the Giannis Antetokounmpo brand, I think winning the titles in the basketball sense will make it work. But if you want to make things ugly, I think Giannis can do it. Giannis can do it anytime he wants, and he's bought up enough good grace where people will still like him afterwards, because at least he gave them the commitment this time and it didn't work out. And this will probably happen with one or two early playoff exits. I think that's how close we are to Giannis walking away, and he gave you that little hint at that in the GQ article that I think we we knew was going on behind the scenes. Giannis was making the calculated decision of do I stay in Milwaukee or do I walk in free agency? I thought he should have gone to play with Luka in Dallas because that would have been a fun basketball experiment with two players who are faces of their generations. Obviously different generations, but it still would have been fun to watch. And he chose not to make that decision for whatever his reasons may be, whether financial and collecting the Supermax with Milwaukee or wanting to win the championship or just generally loving living in Milwaukee. And as they talked about in the book, like the commitment that franchise made to him and the reward he wanted to bestow upon them. Maybe that all has real impact on what his decision making is. We just don't know Giannis Antetokounmpo that well to know exactly why it is in his truest heart of hearts that he chose to stay in Milwaukee. And it's probably a combination of many things and also possibly fear of the unknown in taking that leap without having the security of a championship or having that $250 million supermax hanging over. Whatever it may be, we don't know the exact answer to it. But I think the notion that Giannis was always going to be the loyal guy to Milwaukee is something that is not grounded in fact, but I think Giannis would like you to believe that it's grounded in fact because it serves him very well. Why? Because everyone, for some reason, thinks of Giannis as this lovable, affable, loyal guy who is the anti-modern superstar. And I don't think that that is a fair representation. It's also represented in a lot of like racial tropes because Giannis is black, but he's not an American black player. And so there is an anti-stereotype there towards uh, Kevin Durant and James Harden and Kyrie Irving and LeBron James. And Giannis Antetokounmpo, one of the things they talked about is him being less politically active in Greece because he wants to love Greece uh, for what it is and for being his home, even if Greece is in... Greece is filled with a lot of Nazis. Like, let's put it frank from the book. Like, Greece... Greece has a lot of Nazis. The, the, the third largest political party in Greece is essentially the Nazi party, and they don't like the fact that a black immigrant kid in a place that has been overwhelmingly white for many, many years is this hero pointed up for Greek excellence, and the Greek government only accepted him once they could get something out of it, and how there are thousands and thousands of Giannis's, not necessarily in skill, but of players who could have had opportunities to play European basketball, who could have had opportunities to play uh, in Australia or play in China or fulfill their dreams of playing professional basketball across the world in some of the best leagues, who could not do it because when you are an immigrant, you do, and even when you're born in Greece, you do not get Greek citizenship. And so all of those are issues that Giannis has not articulated in terms of being a social justice warrior of sorts for the 
Greek people and especially the black Greek migrant population who is consistently exploited in a country that has even stricter immigration laws than in America and does not grant citizenship to those people and is an even smaller racial minority because Greece is a supermajority white country and white Greek country. All of that to say Giannis is not that person specifically and for a certain segment of the population where that may be a deal breaker for why they don't like LeBron James or Kevin Durant or any of these other superstars, Giannis is someone you can hold up as an anti-modern star. In all of that encapsulated together is not the fairest representation for Giannis, but Giannis can play into that and have it be hugely, hugely successful for Giannis Antetokounmpo. All of that to say, this is a lot of fan fiction and uh, narrate not narrating, what is the word, um, novelizing this person into a superhero of proportions that is not actually grounded in reality. And it's really interesting to hear Giannis talk about this because it it should we should be talking less about him as this modern star because he's really not at the heart of it because there is no such concept of a modern NBA star or an anti-modern star of entitlement and all the stereotypes that you throw out because stereotypes in and of themselves are not grounded in reality. They are a small portion of a picture that is used to uh, generalize across an entire group of people. That's what stereotypes are, whether it be black stereotypes, uh, Asian st- or racial stereotypes, let's just put them all together, religious stereotypes, uh, and I mean, you could go to uh, LGBTQIA stereotypes all the way down the list, like to any kind of stereotype. It is a small picture of something that is not grounded in reality, and that is similar to what is happening with Giannis in the conversation of a modern star. All of that included not just the loyalty or the affability or the innocence of Giannis Antetokounmpo, but also the lack of social justice messaging around it. All of that is encapsulated in this image of Giannis Antetokounmpo that, as he's giving you this image here, is not exactly who Giannis is because nobody can live up to that idealized standard. Nobody can live up to being a hero without having their own flaws because, in the grand scheme of things, we are all human. And Giannis Antetokounmpo, as much as of a Greek freak he is, is being held up for something that deep down in his core he cannot be because it's not who he is. He'll play into it because it's beneficial for him, but that's a problem with us, not a problem with Giannis. So on yesterday's podcast, while we were talking to Razor Rosenthal, something that came up was the conversation around TCU and Gary Patterson and the changing landscape of college sports where Gary Patterson was the definite, he was the TCU football program for 20 years through, as we found out, three different conferences going from Conference USA to the Mountain West to then the Big 12 and then making it to the top of the Big 12 pretty quickly at TCU and Obviously, there's a, there's controversy around Gary Patterson, whether it be racist remarks in the past, or uh, I think he used the N-word at one point, or mistreatment of players that's in his past. Um, those might be playing a part around this, but after two decades at the job and a lot of this stuff being public five, four or five years ago even, um, it seems unlikely that this was anything more than 
TCU finishing 7th, 5th, 7th, and 8th in the Big 12 over the last four years, as is kind of the case in the cutthroat business of college football, where a lot of voice has been given to recently the statistic that currently $560 million of money, this is courtesy of an ESPN report from two weeks ago, $560 million of money is being spent to buy out coaches currently in college football right now. And the conversation picked up a lot on Twitter yesterday because Justin Fuente, the coach at Virginia Tech for six years, he was the first coach post-Frank Beamer at Virginia Tech. He got fired after a season where they were 5-5. Five and five. They had just come off a victory against Duke. And this is courtesy of Spencer Hall, a.k.a. Bum Chillips, on Twitter. Uh, shout out to the shutdown full cast. But basically, if Virginia Tech had waited another month to fire Justin Fuente, they would have saved $2.3 million. And the decision Virginia Tech basically made was we would rather get ahead in the recruiting game. That Our advantage in recruiting by firing the coach earlier and acknowledging to players that the transfer portal is now open for everyone else, by doing this, we are going to be ahead of the schedule and value that head start more than $2.3 million to that athletic program. And Virginia Tech is now in a line of like middle tier schools who have moved on from coaches over the last couple years. I know we throw out the stat all the time about the SEC having 10 programs of the 14 switch coaches in the last three seasons. If you go down the line, uh, you have Uh, In the SEC West, you have Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Arkansas, now LSU, moving on from Ed Orgeron, and uh, who am I forgetting in that conference? Uh, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, oh, Auburn. Auburn fired Gus Malzahn last year. So Auburn, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Arkansas, and LSU, that's five there. You go over to the SEC East, Florida, who's might fire Dan Mullen again. Um, Missouri with Eli Drinkwitz is in his second year. Um, the, the South Carolina Gamecocks and Virginia, uh, Vanderbilt and Tennessee all have new coaches this year. So the SEC is playing a different game where if you're not at the top of the conference, they can go get someone else because everyone wants to play that game in the SEC. But if you go to these other conferences with programs that are not playing the same game as top-of-the-top SEC programs, you'll see a similar copycat trend with programs that don't have the same prestige or, at at a basic level, the financial resources to keep this up and still build a respectable program. In terms of revenue-generating programs, Virginia Tech ranks 28th in collegiate athletics. Um, If you want to go further down the list to find TCU, TCU uh, does not, uh, sorry, TCU ranks 42nd in athletic budget. Texas Tech, who fired their coach after starting 5-3, is 33rd in terms of revenue in college football. And so you create this interesting dynamic of of revenue-generating programs and programs at the top of the sport like Texas A&M, Texas, Ohio State, Alabama with the most money. And then you create a second tier of schools who are trying to copy those models in an effort to get there. 
kind of like in a pre-Moneyball world in baseball where if you watch the movie, they're like, we're going to do exactly what the Yankees do because it works for the Yankees, except it works for the Yankees because the New York Yankees have so much money at their disposal that they can make mistakes and still be okay. And so I'm thinking about this same trend in other conferences, and I start off thinking about the Big 12. So if you go through the Big 12, you have 10 programs right now, and in the last, let's say, two seasons, the last two years in the Big 12, you have Baylor, who didn't fire a coach technically, Matt Rule left, but Baylor needed to fill a coaching role, Texas Tech, West Virginia filled their coaching role, TCU, Kansas State, Texas, and Kansas. That is seven of the 10 programs in the last two years have replaced their head coach in the Big 12, which is the similar rate to the SEC, except they don't have the same pedigree of teams as the SEC. No one would argue the Big 12 is a conference on the same level as the SEC. And so the Big 12 is trying to copy this model of if you're not Oklahoma, you just keep turning coaches over for the most part. And in fairness, Baylor was a different case. But all these schools keep turning over coaches real quickly. So let's go to another conference like the Pac-12, for example. In the past three years, the Pac-12 has turned over the Colorado coaching job, technically twice because Mel Tucker took the job and then went to Michigan State for a better job. But Colorado's turned over their job, Washington, Arizona, USC, uh, Cal is four years, so they technically get exempt from this one. UCLA is technically four years as well, if you really want to pin that one down. Uh, Stanford is good, Oregon State, and Washington State. So that's six out of 10, I mean, six out of 12. And if you want to go to four years, that would make it a eight out of 12 proposition. So a slightly lower rate, but you still have obviously the high turnover rate in that conference. Then you go to the ACC, which is slightly above those, but in a similar respect here, you have Boston College has changed coaches, Florida State, Georgia Tech, North Carolina, uh, Wake Forest has not, uh, Virginia Tech just made the move today, uh, Pitt has not, North Carolina has made the turn, uh, Miami is going to make the turn, Louisville has made the turn in the past three years, so that's another 50% rate in that conference with upcoming moves potentially for Syracuse firing their coach. You might see a move like that. So you see a high turnover rate in the conference. Maybe Duke finally moves on from Cutcliffe as well. So you're seeing a high turnover rate in the conference similar to what is going on at the SEC, which was, a, I think, myself coming into this until the conversation the internet was having today. The SEC has that level because people want to compete for a championship at that level in that conference because if you can get to that point or just be like respectable enough to be in the conversation then all of a sudden it changes your program overnight it worked for Clemson for about five years you're in a position to do it and if it's not working that's the standard that is being set and unfortunately that's not going to be every team because we talk about this uh, here on the podcast and it changes every now and then, but there are about 12 to 15 college coaching jobs 
that are better than having an NFL coaching job in terms of the power and the money and the situation that you're walking into. These are desirable jobs that even an NFL level coach would at the very least pause to consider. Maybe not Mike Tomlin, like the conversation we were having about him going to USC. But if you're, for example, Bill O'Brien, if you're Joe Judge, who was about to get the job at Mississippi State before the New York Giants hired him, if you're one of those coaches, there are college jobs that would be more desirable than having an NFL job, similarly to how Nick Saban left the Miami Dolphins for the University of Alabama type of similar situation to that. And those jobs just off the top of my head would be Alabama, Auburn, Georgia, Florida, LSU. Uh, If you go to the, I guess, Texas A&M even technically. So Texas A&M because of athletic budget. If you go to the Big 12, Oklahoma, Texas, that's eight. Uh, Pac-12, Oregon, USC, that's 10. Big 10, uh, Ohio State, Michigan, Uh, Michigan State, you could debate. Penn State, you could debate. That's where the 12 to 15 comes into play. You could debate those two if you wanted. Um, And then you go to the ACC. Clemson is the only one you would take. So that's 13. And then you can debate the merits of like USC or Penn State or, uh, you know, Michigan State. You can debate the merits of that one. But 12 to 15 programs that can compete at the highest level and would be as desirable, if not more desirable, than an NFL job. If you're not one of those programs, you desperately want to become one of those programs. Clemson went from not being one of those programs to being one of those programs. It happens. There are ways to sneak in and everyone wants that because it looks really, really fun to be one of those dominant teams. And when you don't have the financial resources to compete with one of those teams and you acknowledge that there is not a situation other than getting unbelievably lucky that will allow you to get to that situation. Because people forget, how did Dabo Swinney end up at Clemson? Clemson fired, I believe it was Tommy Bowden, if I remember correctly. I think it was Bobby Bowden's son got fired at Clemson. And Dabo was the interim coach as the wide receivers coach. And he kept the job from wide receivers coach to head coach. They just took the interim wide receivers coach, hired him as the head coach, and everyone hated the move, hated the move to bring in Dabo. So that Clemson lucked their way into getting that coaching search right and then not messing it up once they got uh, Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence into that program and they had six years of dominance. And you could argue Clemson's going to be behind the curve for two years on that. The program's still super desirable because it's now been proven that you can succeed there. Similarly to how we put Texas on the list, like Texas is a hugely desirable job because it has a lot of money and it's proven that you can succeed there in the past. I guess the extra one would be Notre Dame. If you want to argue Notre Dame, that's totally fair as well. Notre Dame's kind of like in the middle where you're like, you could again debate the merits of Notre Dame because you've seen it before, but the school is not as financially invested as they used to be. So you could argue the merits of Notre Dame. And so if you're not one of those 12 to 15 programs, You have to start questioning whether or not there is a spot for you in this hierarchy of college football other than just being trying to other than just being Kentucky, who we talk about a lot with our buddy Blake Jude because it's obviously his hometown team, which is are you content with every now and then 
maybe making New Year's Six Bowl game. If you're Baylor, and every now and then you can kind of compete for a championship. Or, perfect example, along with uh, Kentucky, Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State finds themselves in a place where they are totally content with Mike Gundy, local guy, you know, obviously problematic past, but Mike Gundy played at Oklahoma State from the state of Oklahoma, and he's coached there now for 15 years, and he's never had a season that where you look up and you're like, oh my gosh, this team, there's never been a prolonged period of being bad at Oklahoma State, and Mike Gundy is never in jeopardy of losing his job. Every now and then he's connected to like a Tennessee job or a job like of equal footing to Oklahoma State. And yet there is never a prolonged period of losing at Oklahoma State. And so everyone's happy as they are and they keep Mike Gundy as the coach. Here's the case in point. The Oklahoma Sooners have played in 14 consecutive bowl games under Mike Gundy. Other than the one year where they won the Fiesta Bowl with Brandon Whedon beating Andrew Luck. So outside of the one Brandon Whedon season, do you know what the highest ranked finish for Oklahoma State was? 11. The best finish they had was 11th in the country. They have had four 10-win seasons. They have had one 11-win season and won 12-win season the year that they beat Andrew Luck in the Fiesta Bowl with Brandon Whedon, and Brandon Whedon was tricked into being a first-round pick. Since that, they have not missed a bowl game. They have 8, 8, 7, those ten, the run of 10 wins with, uh, I think, Mason Rudolph was the quarterback at that time, and I th- want to say that was right around... This was pre-Chuba Hubbard. They had a really good wide receiver who I forgot now who it was. Um, but... Anyways, so they came into 2000 and so they go 7 8 8. This year they're on pace to win, you know, 9 10 games. They're ranked 11 currently right now in the country. So that tells you a little bit about where they stand. And so the Oklahoma State Cowboys are fine with Mike Gundy. They are not disillusioned to the idea of we can't be a competitive program because X Y or Z. It's fine for them. They have a third place a Seventh place, third, 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 second. It's the joke we've made about Oklahoma State for years, which is Oklahoma State exists to only lose every big game that they ever play in the history of that program. They'll never be better than Oklahoma. They'll probably they're better than Texas right now, but they used to never be better than Nebraska. During the less miles years, they could never be better than Texas. And that was just kind of what it was for Oklahoma State. And they're totally fine with that. They find joy in being consistently good every single year, similarly to how the old model of college football worked, where bowl games mattered a lot. Conference, it wasn't a championship or bust mantra. Um, And I don't mean to glorify the past in this way. I'm not even saying it's better or worse that way. It's just an unsustainable method now as everyone is unhappy trying to reach the mountain which is interesting because I mentioned those you know, 12 to 15 programs earlier about whether or not you're satisfied with who they are. Case in point, Washington, when they hired Chris Peterson, they weren't trying to take a next step. They made a college football playoff as a fluky team. Uh, maybe they pushed Chris Peterson out. It seems like Chris Peterson was content to retire on his own terms, um, and they haven't really been too overly concerned with being great since then. They're fine being a pretty good team. And what's interesting is one of these teams in that purgatory right now 
is Michigan. Because Michigan gave Jim Harbaugh the gigantic contract of we want to be in the game. We want to be we want to be back the same way Texas wants to be back. We want to be back the same way Miami wants to be back. We want to be back back. And it you know what that means when I say we want to be back back. It's a very unique college football term of wanting to, your program to be back. And for Michigan, that means, you know, national championship expectations, because obviously they won the title in 1997, and they won, you know, seven seven Big Ten titles or whatever it was uh, with uh, Lloyd Carr, I'm guessing, I think it was the name of the coach, and they haven't won one since then. You've seen the success there in the past for Michigan, and they were really, really bad with Brady Hoke and Rich Rodriguez. It was really, really bad at Michigan. And then Jim Harbaugh comes in, and since then, similarly to Oklahoma State, it's been 10 wins, 10 wins, 8 wins, 10 wins, 9 wins, last year a bit of a throwaway year at 2-4 and because of the weird rules of the conference. This year, they're sitting pretty at 10 wins. They are right now 9-1, and I believe, so you're right on path for 10 wins right now. Yep, 9-1 and Michigan, so... You're headed for 10 wins to close out the season. Yeah, you're not going to beat Ohio State. Yeah, you're not going to beat Michigan State. But maybe that's not the standard you have to set. It'd be nice if you could beat Ohio State or beat Michigan State. But that's not the... I mean, they beat Michigan State 50-50. If you could beat Michigan State every year, that'd be good. But it's not the gold standard for Michigan. They gave Jim Harbaugh an extension by just offering him less money. And Jim Harbaugh looked around last year and he was putting his name out there for the Lions job and he was trying to see if he had any interest anywhere else. Looked up, didn't see it, decided to stay. And so Michigan is now kind of in that Oklahoma State territory where they're knocking on the door, but they're doing it in a way that takes advantage unintentionally, I believe. This is an unintentional thing. They're taking advantage of the new market inefficiency in college football. And that market inefficiency is when you fire a coach in the transfer portal era, your team becomes really, really bad. And the response to this for a lot of coach or athletic program athletic directors is let's fire the coach earlier. So the players are not disillusioned to the idea that the coach is not going to be there anymore. If they want to transfer they can transfer. If they want to, you know, redshirt the year like USC did, they'll redshirt the year and we'll punt on this season instead of punting on the first year with the new coach. And this is an interesting counterpoint because the stability that Michigan and Oklahoma State create and Utah has created in the Pac-12 and Washington tried to create in the Pac-12, that level of stability every now and then can slip through the cracks. And if you're Washington, you'll maybe make it to the playoff. If you're Utah, you'll maybe make it to a Rose Bowl. If you're Michigan, you'll maybe make it to a college football playoff, like they're still in the territory to this year. But if you don't, you'll play in an Orange Bowl. You'll play in a Peach Bowl. You'll play in a Citrus Bowl, like Jim Harbaugh has done each of the, the, th- each of the last four seasons. You'll be able to find those bowl games even if you don't get the championship, uh, the dynamic program, the way Ohio State, Oklahoma, Alabama, Georgia, 
and under normal circumstances, Clemson are. Because it's just really, really hard to be that consistently. And to be honest, Florida might be a changing landscape right now as well because that Florida job is not super desirable. Not all these programs are going to be great all the time. The SEC is a cutthroat conference, and the transfer portal makes it such that Orgeron is a terrible coach, and uh, Dan Mullen is a not likable coach, and they hire a terrible defensive coordinator, and all of a sudden Florida and LSU are in disarray. So who's going to fill that void? Kentucky is going to sneak in in that void with a a second 10-win season in four years because Kentucky is totally fine with the stability of Mark Stoops for 10 years as their head coach, and they don't have any reason to move on because they are really, really happy. And this is all a matter of perspective, which is the exact conversation that was being articulated on Twitter earlier today. Expectations matter a lot. If Virginia Tech has the expectations of becoming Auburn or has the expectations of becoming Clemson, probably unlikely. Again, Clemson got incredibly lucky to even get to that place. And so over time, you will adjust expectations based on what your circumstances are. And so, you know, USC is kind of playing this game where they're trying to get back to the top. And USC technically has the resources to succeed because you've seen it happen there before. But USC was kind of content to have Sarkeesian and Lane Kiffin and Clay Helton for years and years, even if it meant they weren't going to be a nationally prominent program, because it's really hard to be a nationally prominent program. It's even harder to do it on the West Coast, but it is really hard to be a nationally prominent program in an age where Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Oklahoma, and Georgia now are pipelines to the pros. And five- and four-star recruits are all accumulating at those programs at a rate that didn't exist before because regional recruiting doesn't really exist the way it used to in college football. Everyone will go everywhere if it means getting those five- and four-star recruits. And so to get into that game is a really, really big deal for those guys. And Virginia Tech, TCU, Texas Tech... Um, I mean, you can go down the line of programs that have moved on from coaches. We just said about 50% of them in the last three years want to play that game. And I think some of them would be happier with the stability that Michigan has found, that Oklahoma State has found. And this is obviously not where Virginia Tech and company stand. I mean, TCU is one of these programs. They committed to Gary Patterson for 20 years, and it was only when the winning dried up that they went for a new coach in a cutthroat business of, okay, we're not that anymore. It's not fun to lose. Therefore, we're going to change the coach. And Wake Forest is stuck by Dave. I think it's Dave Clawson is the coach there. Pitt has stood by Narduzzi a little bit. And I think Narduzzi might be in jeopardy as well. But programs will stick by it a little longer than the cutthroat programs who are miserable, like we laughed at Texas all week for. Those programs seem kind of miserable as they try and fight to get back to national prominence, even at that level of expectations. But if you're not one of those teams and you are firing a coach, just temper expectations a little bit. It's an interesting changing time in college football, and you're probably not going to be good for four or five years. Even Clemson, who is the shining example of, look, we can go from being Virginia Tech like Clemson was. We can go from being Virginia Tech or being TCU or being Texas Tech and become 
a, t- a nationally dominant program that wins national championships or at least competes for national championships. And that's technically true. And yet it's not that easy to get there because it took a ridiculous amount of luck for Clemson to get into that position. So it's interesting to see the pivot in college football now where everyone wants to get to that point because it's really, really fun to get to that point and you can become a power broker in a sport that really has a lot of power concentrated at the top for the administrators and the program directors. But it's really, really expensive to try and fail. And also, it's going to make you kind of miserable Yes, shout out to our man Rob Stone for the Padres rap anthem for 2021 that we play every time we want to talk about baseball here. Um, I want to talk about two moves that went down yesterday in baseball just for like small, interesting conversation starters because neither of these moves swing the pendulum at all in baseball. I remember last year we were doing the radio show. Shout out to our boy Martez over at Open Talk Radio 313 The Flash. Um, We were doing the radio show and the George Springer signing had broke. And I started thinking about how can I have a conversation about this? And the thing I realized is George Springer doesn't swing the pendulum at all in Major League Baseball. It doesn't change any balance of power in baseball by him going from the Astros to the Toronto Blue Jays. The Astros were still really good, and the Toronto Blue Jays did not like switch places with another team just by virtue of having George Springer on the team. And then lo and behold, George Springer missed a lot of games due to injury, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. The point with that was these moves don't actually make that much of an impact on the grand scheme of the game, but it's still interesting conversation points about the process itself of constructing a Major League Baseball roster. So the Toronto Blue Jays yesterday signed Jose Berrios, who they traded for at the deadline in one of those like dumps that the Minnesota Twins had with all kinds of teams dumping at the deadline, whether it was the Cubs or the Twins or the Nationals. Everyone was just dumping players. It was the buyer's market of all buyer's markets at the deadline. And the, you know, Yankees got Anthony Rizzo and Joey Gallo and Schwarber ended up on the Red Sox. And you had the Cubs trading Baez to the Mets and you had all a Scherzer and Trey Turner going to the Nationals. Just a gigantic, massive buyer's market at the trade deadline. The Braves won a World Series just by getting Eddie Rosario from the Cleveland Guardians, I guess now they're called. They got him from Cleveland. They got Jorge Soler from the Royals for basically nothing. They got 
uh, Jack Peterson from the Cubs, who were selling their entire team off, and they got Adam Duvall from the Miami Marlins, who sold off him, Starling Marte, and Yimi Garcia at the or Garcia at the deadline. So they built a championship team just by teams dumping players. And Toronto re-signed Berrios for seven years, 131, which was shocking to see just because when you see a seven in front of any signing, it's a bit jarring, especially because Jose Berrios had been really good a few years ago, but had kind of tailed off a little bit. And then he was a solid pitcher for the Toronto Blue Jays. But Blue Jays spent $20 million on Hyunjin Ryu. They re-signed Robbie Ray last year. And this year, their big free agent splashes Jose Berrios. And it's really a five-year contract. And it's about 17 a year, which is about fair market value for Berrios. I don't know how great that contract is going to look, you know, three years from now. But it's about what Wee Yin Chen got from the Marlins a few years ago. So Berrios had a good contract there. It was just interesting to see the Blue Jays commit that much to a pitcher who... I didn't really think of in that context, or at least in modern baseball, I think of like the middle class getting totally squeezed out in baseball. And so the idea of Berrios making $100 million was something that probably shouldn't have been that jarring, but was a little bit jarring to see. So Toronto committed the pitching staff that way. I don't know if it swings the pendulum all the way, but Blue Jays dropped, you know, $17 million a year on a number two starter. The other interesting move was Noah Syndergaard, going to the Angels. And when you hear a pitcher with injury history going to that organization that has not had a good starting pitcher since Jared Weaver 10 years ago, just no good starting pitchers at all. And now they have that magical gift of Shohei Otani who can bat and pitch, but his arm has also had like a million surgeries and he came off Tommy John last year. So you're already concerned about that with injury history. So the team that has never had a good starting pitcher signs Noah Syndergaard, who used to be a great starting pitcher. Like, they, they, he used to be a great, great starting pitcher, and he's played two games in the last two seasons, and it's really convoluted to know what exactly Noah Syndergaard is. And the, to be fair, they only gave him a one-year contract at $21 million. It's similar to, like, what the Braves did with Donaldson a couple years ago, where they just gave, like, a prove-it deal, and then Donaldson cashed in on a big contract with the Twins. And even with knowing that the Angels have had just the worst luck with pitchers and injury history with Angels pitchers is the worst possible combination, I still really like the move. The Angels never get starting pitchers, at least not of the caliber that were once Noah Syndergaard. I know they had like Matt Harvey, but Matt Harvey really just tailed off at the very end. And the problem for years with the Angels, like I've talked about this forever, I can explain why the Angels are not good despite the fact that they've now had two generational talents across the last decade. First, Mike Trout, who's now in his 30s, and Shohei Otani. I can I can explain it away, but I don't understand why they're still not good. And they've spent so much money on big-time players, whether it's Justin Upton or Anthony Rendon, fresh off a World Series. And by the way, Anthony Rendon has still been really good. Like, he was third in war during the shortened 2020 season. Like, Anthony Rendon, really, really good piece also. I still don't understand how the Angels have not been good across the last eight years. And I assume it's starting pitching and bullpen. But this offseason, they bring in Rafael Iglesias from the uh, Cincinnati Reds. They signed uh, Dylan Bundy as a starter, and he's been, you know, above average. He was, you know, fringe case for an all-star this year. And the Angels have still just not done 
anything and I don't understand it. So the process is interesting with this because they've also been connected to Corey Kluber and whatever else they're going to try and do to improve that pitching staff by just throwing money at their problems the way Arde Moreno does it. I'm just fascinated by the process because I like the the idea, but every time the angel, it's like uh, the slipping on the banana peel thing. It's like, you think it's a great signing. You think it's going to really help. And then nothing ends up happening because they happen to play in the same division as the gigantic juggernaut machine of a Houston Astros. And to be fair to them, like now Oakland, who was really good for the last four years is lost their manager to my San Diego Padres and is selling off assets. Like, Oakland's not trying anymore. Texas really sucks. And yet, even with that, the Seattle Mariners just fill the void. It's so weird. Like, the, the Mariners went from being average to horrible, like tanking, tanking, to back in the playoff picture, and the Angels just couldn't do anything. And I don't understand it at all. But the process is interesting because they're trying the exact same way they've done it in the past, which is throw money at the problem and see what sticks. They're going to throw $21 million at Noah Syndergaard. Maybe they throw another $10 million at Corey Kluber and say, these guys were former Cy Young candidates. Let's see if we can just take an expensive flyer on them and turn it around. And maybe, just maybe, we can build enough of a stable foundation that we can maybe get within five games of the playoffs by the end of the season. And it's a weird, weird process to undergo. I've seen it get burned many times before, and yet I still think it's a good move for the Angels to make. So the process around this is very interesting, even if they're free agent signings that don't swing the balance of power in Major League Baseball at all on the verge of another labor strike and a really big one if you've read the reporting around this. I know we haven't talked about it a lot because, you know, football. But it's been a it's going to be a really interesting story over the next few months with the labor lockout in baseball and whether or not some people are signing for agent contracts earlier. Remember Eduardo Rodriguez, who we did the podcast on during covid about his uh, heart condition and the fact that we don't know the science behind covid-19. He just got 80 million dollars from the Detroit Tigers. Didn't know the Detroit Tigers were trying to be competitive. Really happy for Eduardo Rodriguez that after, you know, having to miss all of 2020 with, uh, I think it was heart murmurs and battling COVID. Uh, I'm sorry, it was um, uh, inflammation in his heart and having to miss the entire 2020 season and come back and pitch okay for Boston. The fact he got his money made me feel really, really good, especially before the lockout. So, you know, those moves don't actually mean anything, but it's just interesting to see the process by which people go about the offseason in modern baseball, especially when you throw the wrench of the labor strike into all of this. So with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping into the Take It Easy podcast. We have episodes every single day, Monday through Friday, as well as Wired Up on Sundays. Make sure to follow, download, leave a five-star review, support our partners over at betonline.ag. That sports book has been very, very good to us throughout the past three months, and thank you to everyone over at Believe as well. And so with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, take it easy. We will talk to you again tomorrow.